Hello, everybody. This is The Legal Brief. I'm your host, Misty Maris, and today we're going to be talking about the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Now, this has been over a two-week trial. There have been a tremendous amount of publicity surrounding this case. The trial has every aspect of a trial that it just creates so much drama in the courtroom. We've had fiery exchanges between the judge, between the prosecutor, between the defense attorney. We've had the defendant, Kyle Rittenhouse himself, actually take the stand, which is such a rarity in a criminal case. Now, all of this culminating into the jury making a determination about Kyle Rittenhouse's fate. And look, the jury is is taking their job seriously. They have been deliberating yesterday for eight and a half hours. Today, they started around 10 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, They've been asking questions. Now we see the jury is asking to review certain information and, and certain video from that day in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, This is one to watch. And I'm covering this gavel to gavel. I've seen every minute of this trial. But as we wait for the jury to make that determination, what are they really having to consider? This is something so important in a criminal case to remember that the jury has parameters. The jury has what's called Jury instructions. Well, that sounds pretty easy, right? Jury instructions, they just follow the rules. Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. The jury instructions actually lay out the law that the jurors have to apply to all of the facts that they've heard throughout the trial. In this case, the jury instructions are 36 pages long. Yes, you heard me right. 36 pages long. And look, it's really complicated. So on Monday, the judge actually read the instructions to the jurors in open court. And I got to tell you, I was watching. I was watching with other legal analysts. Uh, I'm covering this case for multiple networks, but I've been watching it with other uh, legal, brilliant legal minds on HLN. And we were all a bit befuddled because it was extraordinarily confusing. The judge had to stop and start a few times. We lost some continuity and issues with the jury instructions that are usually ironed out before all of the jurors are brought into the room to hear them had not been done. So to take a step back, before the jury hears the instructions, there's what's called a charging conference. And that's when the prosecution and the defense fight about what the jury is going to hear. There's something called pattern jury instructions. That's step one. That's the starting point. But that can change depending on the circumstances of the case. So here, the prosecution and defense did go back and forth on some issues, but they weren't all figured out by the time the jurors actually heard the instructions. And so the judge actually had to excuse the jury a couple of times, then bring them back in until the jury instructions were finally ready for consumption. But personally, I really think that the jurors lost a little bit there because it made it very confusing to understand exactly what they were tasked with. And To that end, yesterday, during jury deliberations, what was the first thing the jurors asked for? Extra copies of the instructions. So my guess is that the jurors spent a lot of the day yesterday pouring over all of that. But before we get into 
all of what the jury is going to be considering and what we're thinking and reading those tea leaves. It's difficult to know what's in jurors' minds, but we can have, there's some gauges depending on what questions they're asking in the courtroom, and we're going to analyze that in a minute. Let's go back and talk about what this case is really about. So Kyle Rittenhouse faces five felony charges for shooting three men, killing two. And this all happened during a protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which developed into extraordinary civil unrest. This was back in August of 2020. What happened that night? Well, we heard two weeks of testimony. We saw evidence. But what really carried the day in the courtroom? There's video. So the video shows and from different angles, there's multiple videos that were used. This is the new age, everybody. This is the new age of criminal law where people have, you know, phones and there's drone footage. So there's video of what happened that night. And that video has been played multiple times for the jury, both by the prosecution and by the defense. What else happened during the case that really mattered? Well, Kyle Rittenhouse himself took the stand. The defendant took the stand just so everybody understands how rare that is. It's a very risky move on the part of a defense attorney to recommend their client take the stand. Now, the decision is ultimately left up to the defendant. They get to choose. Your, your lawyer can tell you all day, be blue in the face. Don't do it. Don't do it. Do it. Do it. It's up to the person who is in that defendant's seat at the end of the day. And Kyle Rittenhouse chose to take the stand. Now, his testimony in the court of public opinion was polarizing. He did break down. He did get emotional. People say crocodile tears. Others say emotional moment. Some people say emotional moment, but only emotional because he's caught, not emotional because he cares about what happened. Question is, who knows? The court of public opinion could be a barometer about what different jurors are thinking. Reasonable minds could potentially differ. But in any case, that was a landmark moment in the case. Because we're at the precipice, the jury is convening, you know, the jury is back there in that room deliberating about what happened. I want to cut through some of what happened during the trial and get right to those closing arguments where both sides wrapped up their case so that everybody can understand what the jury is really looking at yesterday and today and what they're considering as they continue to deliberate now, I mean, going on a significant amount of time in day two. So the jury in these jury instructions has the opportunity to get more information, not more information, but get information that happened during the trial to review during their deliberations. The jury instructions lay out what the prosecution has to prove. And in this case, there's five felony charges. The first one is first degree reckless homicide, use of a dangerous weapon. This is connected to the death of Joseph Rosenbaum. This is the first person that Kyle Rittenhouse shot. There's bystander video and there is drone footage that shows Rosenbaum chasing Rittenhouse through a parking lot, throwing a plastic bag at Kyle Rittenhouse, lands on the ground. There's still a contested issue about what's in that bag. Rittenhouse continues to run. At some point, he turns around. He points the gun at Rosenbaum. Rittenhouse testimony. He says, I wanted to stop him. I wanted to deter him. He kept coming at me. He, Rittenhouse turns, continues to run. At some point, Rosenbaum catches up to him. Rittenhouse turns around, 
pulls the trigger, fires multiple shots all within the course of seven seconds. That's what this first charge relates to. There's also a bystander. His name's Richie McGinnis. He's a reporter who was trailing Rittenhouse. He testified that Rosenbaum lunged for Rittenhouse's gun. Key testimony. This is what relates to charge number one. Now, keep in mind, this is a reckless homicide charge, and that is different from intentional homicide. Intentional homicide is exactly what it sounds like, but reckless homicide means that Rittenhouse caused Rosenbaum's death in circumstances that show an utter disregard for human life. So a reckless standard is a little bit less than an intentional standard. And that's a, a burden that might be easier for the prosecutors to reach. Keep in mind, again, I want to emphasize this throughout all of the commentary. It's the prosecution's burden to prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt. The second count is first degree recklessly endangering safety use of a dangerous weapon. Now, this is also connected to the Rosenbaum shooting. This relates to McGinnis, who's this reporter who's trailing, who's trailing behind. He told investigators that he was in the line of fire when Rittenhouse shot Rosenbaum. So this charge relates to endangering somebody who's in the vicinity, even though McGinnis was not shot. The third count is first degree recklessly endangering safety, dangerous weapon. Now, this shows video of an unknown man who has never come forward, leaping at Rittenhouse and trying to kick him. Now, this happens in relation to the second shooting of Anthony Huber. Anthony Huber lifts his skateboard, moves his skateboard towards Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse appears to fire two shots at the unknown man but misses. That man runs away. Again, he's never been identified, uh, but it still is a part of the case because it's a part of this charge of recklessly endangering safety. The fourth count, first degree intentional homicide. There's the word, everybody, intentional homicide. This charge relates directly to Huber's death. For this, video shows Rittenhouse running down the street after shooting Rosenbaum. Huber leaps at Rittenhouse and swings the skateboard at his head and neck, try, and, and testimony is, tries to grab Rittenhouse's gun. That all happens before Rittenhouse fires. Now, the criminal complaint says that Rittenhouse aimed the weapon at Huber. This is how the prosecution intends to satisfy the intentional portion of that. And again, intent means just that. A person kills someone and meant they meant to do it. That carries a mandatory life sentence. So that is one of the most serious charges in this case. Now, interestingly enough, in that pre-charge conference that I was talking about, one of the issues that was pertinent to the prosecution was whether or not there would be something called lesser included offenses. Now, lesser included offenses means that the, the standard is different than the higher charge. It's, it's just as it says, it's less. It's easier to prove. Many times in a case, you want the, the defendant wants this, right? Because the defendant says, okay, well, I want the jury to contemplate other lesser charges that carry lesser sentences. So they have an option that even if the jury feels that there was a, an unlawful killing, they can convict of something lesser. Well, in this case, it was not the defense who was asking for that. It was the prosecution. You know, I'll put a pin in that more on why I, why uh, that may have happened later. 
but the prosecution was victorious and the jury was given the option of second degree intentional homicide and first degree reckless homicide. Now, this means that a jury could find that Rittenhouse acted with utter disregard for human life or that Rittenhouse acted in self-defense and believed he was acting in self-defense, but that his belief was not reasonable. So the jury has a way to convict Rittenhouse of this lesser crime with respect to this count relating to Huber's death. Now, the fifth and final count, attempted first degree intentional homicide. This is the charge Rittenhouse faces for the shooting of Gage Grosskreutz. Now, this happens seconds after he shoots Huber. He shoots Grosskreutz. Grosskreutz comes towards him holding a pistol and Grosskreutz survives. So he was a witness at the trial. Interestingly enough, his testimony, which was for the prosecution, did not go so well. The defense was able to, on cross-examination, elicit testimony that was so damaging to the prosecution's case. And quite frankly, as a lawyer, I'm, I'm surprised because as a prosecutor or a defense attorney, you don't really put anybody on the stand unless you know what they're going to say. But in this case, Gage Grosskreutz said on cross-examination that Rittenhouse did not fire until he pointed his gun at Rittenhouse, which is very, very positive for the defense with respect to that charge. All right. Now that we've gone through all of these charges, that's what the jury is, is dealing with. Those are the charges that the prosecutor has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And I want to make something very clear because it shouldn't be conflated. These are all individual charges. It's not that if you find one, you have to find the other or, or this or that. The prosecution has to prove these all beyond a reasonable doubt. Any charge that the jury finds guilt on means the prosecution proves beyond a reasonable doubt. So all of these individual, Rosenbaum, Huber, Grotzkreutz, and the, and the two who, who were not hit that serve as the basis for the endangering of human life, all of that matters in the deliberation for the jury. Now, what does the defense say? The defense says that Rittenhouse, in each of these circumstances, acted in self-defense. What does that mean? So in Wisconsin, the law of the land that's going to govern this trial, the burden of proof is on the prosecution to disprove self-defense. That's really important. So the prosecution has to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. The defense raises self-defense, and in this case, both Kyle Rittenhouse's testimony as well as the video footage was enough for the defense to raise that. And now it is the prosecution's burden to disprove at least one element of self-defense with respect to all of these charges. So self-defense means that, th that the defendant believed there was an actual or imminent threat that the defendant believed the amount of force that he used was necessary to prevent that, and that he th the threat was to uh, was for grave injury or death, and that the defendant's belief was reasonable.
So there's two parts to this. When we're talking about what's reasonable, we look at the case from the eyes of Kyle Rittenhouse that night, but we use what's called a reasonable person standard. What would a reasonable person do under the circumstances? But we can't Monday morning quarterback. We can't say I would have done it differently. That doesn't matter. What would a reasonable person do under the circumstances in that moment? So that's what the jury is asked to do. Now, self-defense, if proven, if if the jury, if the prosecution does not disprove at least one element of self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt, then Kyle Rittenhouse will be acquitted on whatever charge it relates to. So with all five of these charges, it's the same defense. It's just slightly different circumstances with respect to each one. And again, all of this caught on tape, footage from multiple angles. Well, what does this mean for the trial? So let's go take a step back. Those are the charges. That's what the jury is facing. Now, the prosecution and the defense both make closing arguments at the end of the case. And this is what you do, right? So you go through, you make your opening statement at the beginning, and then you present all of the evidence. And then at the end of the case, both sides have the opportunity to do a closing argument. And this is their moment to put together the pieces for the jury so the jury understands what's their narrative, what's their case, what's this case about. The other critical and most important component of this is that those closing arguments are the first time that the jury has actually heard the law while they're hearing the closing arguments. So they get this chart, these charges, they get these jury instructions first. So they get to hear what the law is. And now the prosecution and defense put that all together. So the prosecution and defense can say, here's the facts and here's how the law applies. In the prosecution's closing argument, they argued that Kyle Rittenhouse provoked these attacks upon himself. The reason that they did that is because the law says if you're the initial aggressor and you provoke an attack, you can't use self-defense as a justifiable reason to use force. But it's a bit more complicated than that. So if a person believes he's in uh, that danger of great bodily harm or death, they may use self-defense. If they provoked the attack, then they cannot. However, if they try to withdraw from the attack and then, and the force continues, they can, they now can use self-defense again. So there's a couple of hitches in that. And there's a couple of different theories of the case. So one is called intentional provocation and the other is called unintentional provocation. Intentional provocation means that you meant to do it. It's like goading somebody. Okay. So that's the, that's the example. Unintentional provocation means even though you might not have meant to do it by your actions, you provoked these attacks upon yourself. And that's how they framed Kyle Rittenhouse in the prosecution's closing argument. They said he came to Kenosha, Wisconsin. He had an AR-15 rifle and he came to cause trouble. And that's why he was there. They act, they went so far as to call him an active shooter. And they framed everybody around him as people and all of the victims in this case uh, trying to stop an active shooter from wreaking havoc on the scene. So that's how the prosecution framed the case in their closing argument. The defense then obviously had a completely different, a completely different story to tell the jury. The defense 
talked about Kyle Rittenhouse was there, not because he wanted to cause trouble, because there are a lot of people there, right? And he was there for various reasons that were not unlawful. And he, in each of these instances, was faced with that imminent threat and acted reasonably under the circumstances. Now, the defense and the prosecution, actually, but the defense used the video. So the defense went through the video. They did stop motion so you could see each part of what is relevant to the case in slow motion. And and that's how the defense framed their case. Now, final impressions on both closing arguments from my perspective. And look, I mean, I'm not the ultimate arbiter of what's good lawyering. Reasonable minds can disagree and of course, everybody has their own style and everybody, you know, their strategy and and lawyers spend a lot of time developing that strategy. The prosecution had some gaffes in their case. Um, they had some issues with their case and they did what they had to do. They had to frame Kyle Rittenhouse as the initial aggressor. And, and that's their best argument. And they did that. Um, whether or not it's enough. Only time will tell. That's where we are right now, waiting for the jury to come back. Now, the defense, while everything was in their closing argument, they had the stronger case at the close of evidence, just based on what came out in the courtroom. They had a stronger case. And while they did go through the video and everything, I'm not sure that they truly explained that burden of proof issue in that crystal clear way that we're talking about it right now. Because in my opinion, that's the single most important issue in this case is establishing whether or not the prosecution is able to prove and disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt, more importantly. So, you know what? The defense showed the video. They said, look, imminent threat, this, that, fine. But I'm not sure that that legal standard was really explained in such a way that the jury could easily digest it. And part of that is to say, all right, look, you might think it's you might not think it's great that a 17 year old is is coming here with an AR-15, but it's not unlawful activity. And he's he's here. And, you know, whether or not you don't like that isn't enough for you to convict him, right? So something to that effect. And then going through each and every instance and showing how there was an imminent threat to life and why it would be reasonable under the circumstances and really applying the law to the video. The video is the best piece of evidence and applying the law to the testimony. Uh, I'm not sure that was clear. Now, fast forward. The closing arguments are over. The jury is, the jury comes and convenes yesterday They end up delivering for eight hours. The first thing they ask for is extra copies because they they already had copies of of the jury instructions and the law. They ask for extra copies. They ask for 11 more copies. And that tells me that some of the gut inclination of, hey, I'm not sure the jury instructions or the closing arguments really crystallized the legal the legal standards that that are the most important in the case, uh, that that could be it. I mean, look, it could be something else. You know, you're really just you're guessing when it comes to juries. But I would say that would be a very reasonable assessment of why the jury wanted these documents so they could really pour over it themselves. Jury decided last night after eight and a half hours that they, they weren't going to come to a conclusion. So they reconvened this morning. Now, what happened today? The jury has asked to see certain parts of the video again. Most of what they've asked for thus far relate to the shooting of 
Gage Gross Crutes. Now, just to remind you, this is the third person, the living witness. He was shot, but he survived. He testified. His testimony was very key in the case when you're talking about the self-defense argument, because he testified that he held his gun up before Kyle Rittenhouse shot him. So critical, critical piece. Now, what does this all mean? Well, we don't know. So the jury is reviewing the video. Uh, they will they will be deliberating. I'm thinking that the judge will probably check in with them at some point. Uh, probably you know, it, the, the pattern has been to check in with them around five, six o'clock at central time. So only time will tell. But I don't know. Uh, I, I'm thinking that maybe the jury wants to take that video footage. And the jury wants to compare that video footage to the jury instructions. Could be that. Could be that one person was wanted to see it again. Could be that they all wanted to see it again. One thing that's for sure is that the jury is definitely taking their time on this one. And, and that signals that they're really going through each and every charge in a way where they're making, you know, they're making their assessment. They're doing their duty. And, and that's a positive thing. And that's what the jury process is supposed to be. What does that mean for the defendant? Well, in my opinion, and again, reasonable minds can differ. I think if there had been a verdict yesterday, that would have been good news for the defendant. And that's the opposite of the way that these cases usually play out. Usually defense attorneys like it when the verdict takes more time. But in this particular case, after the close of evidence, the defense case was was a bit stronger. So I'm thinking that the defense might be a bit nervous. And to that end, they re uh, they put before the judge a, a motion that had been made prior, which is a motion for a mistrial. The judge had previously reserved decision. This mistrial motion, very, very common in criminal law. You move for a mistrial. You say that the that there were issues during the trial that prejudiced the defendant and therefore the court should grant a mistrial. Usually that means the defendant gets another trial. In this case, the argument slightly different. So the defense argued in this case that the prosecution was actually trying to goad the court into granting a mistrial. They were trying to create an issue that would result in a mistrial. And they said that because the prosecution's case was not going so well. They pointed to, right now, the, the top three, there, and there's other reasons, but the top three issues that the defense points to are things that came up during Kyle Rittenhouse cross-examination. First, the prosecution commented on the time in between Kyle Rittenhouse being arrested and the time he took the stand. He had not told his story before. He had invoked his right to remain silent. The prosecution tried to comment on that. That is a criminal law, trial advocacy, evidentiary, you name the class in law school, big time no. And the judge during the trial had the jury go out and really handed it to the prosecutor for that because it's a constitutional violation. The second violation was the prosecutor tried to bring up evidence that had previously been excluded. And the prosecutor made the argument that the defendant on the stand had opened the door to bring in this evidence. The judge, again, excused the jury and really let the prosecution have it because in these cases, just so everybody understands, once the court excludes something, do not touch it. 
And if you think you have a valid reason to touch it, you have to get the court's permission first. So that's number two. Now, the jury didn't hear all of it, but the jury did hear a portion of that. And and so the defense made the argument that those were violations that caused grave prejudice to the defendant that warranted a mistrial. The third, and this is an issue that's come up in these resur- the resurrection of this of this motion for a mistrial, is the defense claims that there was drone footage video and the drone footage showed during the trial was a bit grainy and difficult to see. The defense claims that the prosecution actually had better video, uh, better resolution, easier to see video that they did not give to them until after the trial had concluded. So that's a that's an issue that the judge is going to grapple with as of now. They're reserving the judge's reserve decision, which means he's not deciding it right now. He's giving the prosecution an opportunity to respond. But the most interesting part about this application for a mistrial by the defense is that they say mistrial with prejudice. What does that mean? That means mistrial, but you can never bring another case again. Usually a mistrial is a second a second crack, right? You get a new trial. So you have the opportunity to present all new evidence, to present all new witnesses and whatnot. And there's there's, um, you know, an analysis both ways, whether or not it's advantageous or not to have a second trial. But, you know, again, people have different opinions on that. But certainly if your case isn't going so good, you might you might want a mistrial. But that's a very serious accusation against the prosecutors in this case. So the defense said because. It appears that this is based on prosecutorial misconduct. They shouldn't get that second bite at the apple. They don't get to try this case again and correct their mistakes. Whether or not the judge grants that, I'm going to say unlikely. Could there be a mistrial if there's a conviction? Possibly because of those constitutional issues that we just discussed. It's certainly something that could happen. And if it didn't happen in this courtroom because the judge because there's a conviction and the judge decided not to grant a mistrial, they would certainly be issues in an appellate court. And that's where we stand here, everybody, on Kyle Rittenhouse Day 2. I am sitting, I am on verdict watch, which means that I am tuned into this courtroom all day, waiting to see what happens next. Uh, I will come back. You know, If there's a verdict today, we'll talk about it. If not, I hope this clarifies some of the issues that are out there what the jury is grappling with. And just this, this is a very serious case. Uh, The maximum sentence is a mandatory life sentence. And so this is certainly one to watch. Um, I'm sorry that we couldn't get into all of the evidence, but there's so much, there's actually so much to talk about in this trial. But if you're interested, make 